may be seated. Ah, to taste that the Lord is good. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 8. That's page 1071 in your pew Bibles, but Isaiah chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, quoted more times in the New Testament than any other prophet. Um, Isaiah is a massive, massive book as well, and so many of the prophecies in Isaiah are quoted in the New Testament, but we're going to be there in chapter 8 today. When we come to God's Word, we know that it is the inspired Word of God, uh, that just because this is an Old Testament book doesn't change anything. It's, it's God's Word. Uh, he spoke it into um, the, the authors, and they wrote it down, and so we believe that it is inspired and infallible and inerrant. And so as we go to the Lord, um, let us go to Him in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for your love for us as we just tasted and saw that you are good. And so, Father, may our hearts rest in that today. As we open up your word, we ask that you would illuminate it in our lives. Transform us, Father. Transform us so that, one, we might be drawn closer to you, and two, we might then go and transform the heart of the city, for that is the vision you have laid upon us. Lord, we love you. We know that you have something in store for us today, so bless this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Isaiah chapter 8, again, is where we're going to be, and today I want to talk very simply about fear. Uh, I know that's not a popular topic. That's not something that you probably woke up this morning and said, you know what I'd like to do? I'd like to talk about fear today, uh, but alas, that is what we're doing. We're going to talk about fear in appropriate fear, good fear Uh, I think we would all agree that there are different types of fear. There's a fun fear. Um, There's a fear for watching scary movies, a a fear that seems fun, and there's some suspense built. I asked in the Ignite service how many people like scary movies, and three people raised their hand. I thought that was more of a normal thing, but there's a good type of fear. Um, It's the same fear that you get from riding roller coasters, if you're into roller coasters. I love roller coasters. I love going with the youth to to Carowinds up in Charlotte and having a good time with them. But there's a fun type of fear, a fear that is not dangerous, but feels a little dangerous, and so there's a good type of fear. There's also a bad type of fear. There's a fear that many of us experience, and it can be debilitating. It's the type of fear that um, hurts your social interactions, it hurts the way you live your life, and it prevents you from getting into the depth and the vitality that God has for us to live in. There's a type of anxiety and fear that draws us away from the truth and, and hurts our path of life. And then there's a, there's a good type of fear. Today, once you leave here, you will get in your car and hopefully buckle your seatbelt because you have weighed the cost and you know that driving is mostly safe, but there could be someone texting and driving and they could sideswipe you, and so it's better to have your seatbelt on. There's a good type of fear. I was one of three children growing up, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom to help kind of wrangle peace in our lives and in our home. And one of the things I learned very early on was that I'm faster than my mom. And that was back in the day when spanking was legal. You could actually do that to your kids. And whenever I was being bad, she would come to spank me, and I would just run to my room faster than she could get there, and I'd lock the door. And so she adopted a blitzkrieg tactic with six words, and those words were, I'm going to call your father. And in me, that produced a good type of fear. It was a fear that disciplined me. It was a fear that got me back on the straight and narrow path, if you will. 
And so I'm going to ask you a question before we really dive into our text today, and it's this. What do you fear? What is your fear? The number one biggest fear in all of America is fear of public speaking, um, which I find ironic that I'm up here now. But it's the fear of public speaking. What is it that you fear? So I'm going to read our text today. I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we're going to go back and start breaking it down. It says this. This is chapter 8 of the book of Isaiah, verse 11. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, me being Isaiah in this case, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Verse 18, here am I and the children of the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. May God bless the reading of his word. As we turn to the book of Isaiah, he addresses our fears. And so the question for the day is, what do you fear? Let me give you a little bit of context for what's going on in this passage, because text without context is not text. And so it's always important to get the context of a passage when you study it. Now, at this time, we are in Israel's divided monarchy stage. There is Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The capital of Judah is Jerusalem, and a young king has just taken over. His name is Ahaz. Ahaz is 20 years old. At the ripe age of 20, I would not have been responsible to make any decisions, much less rule a kingdom, and yet Ahaz is ruling Judah. His father was Jotham. Jotham was a good king who loved the Lord, who followed the Lord and pursued him. He was the king who rebuilt the temple walls, and he was a great king. People loved Jotham. Ahaz had big shoes to fill, and instead of trying to fill them, he swung the pendulum the other way, and he rejected Yahweh, the God of the Bible, God's proper name. He rejected Yahweh, and he decided to follow after the gods of the pagan cultures surrounding them. He was inundated with the practices and the um, religious festivals of the cultures around him. And this is what he was doing. Now, not only was there religious turmoil in Judah, but there was also political turmoil because there was a looming superpower of the day called Assyria. Tiglath-Pileser was the king of Assyria, and he was ruling and reigning, and he was taking over land at a pretty consistent rate. Uh, He was never satisfied with his kingdom, and so he kept taking over more and more land. And there was always this vague threat that at any time he could head towards Judah and Israel. Now, because of this threat, the king of Israel, remember the kingdom to the north, went to Syria. His name was Pekah. He went to Syria, and he started a coalition. They then came to Judah, and they gave Ahaz an option. Why don't you join our coalition against Assyria? Because if we're going to fight, we might as well have strength in numbers, right? We might as well stand a fighting chance. Ahaz has three options. 
one. He can join the coalition with Syria and Israel, and they can try and fight Assyria. Two, he can do what the Lord commanded him to do, and he can have faith in the Lord and not form a political coalition. Or three, and this is a wild card option, he could go to Assyria, the superpower, and beg for mercy. And in an unprecedented event, he goes to Assyria, to Tiglath-Pileser, and he begs for mercy, and they form a coalition with each other. What this means for the normal person in Judah at the time is this. War is coming. There's war on the horizon, and when war comes, things become unpredictable. And there was all of a sudden this great amount of fear in the kingdom of Judah. There was fear that at any time war could erupt, and then all of a sudden the dads, the husbands were conscripted off for war, and we might never see them again. And at this day and age, the ladies would stay at home, and and they were going to stay at home, and they were going to have to raise kids without daddies. And the market was going to tank, and that nest egg that you had saved up is going to diminish, and it might not be enough to last through retirement. It might not be enough to pass on some wealth to the next generation. There was uncertainty, so I can't imagine the Fox News or the CNN or the Twitter trending topics at the time, because there are conspiracies churning out, and there are things going on that, that create uncertainty, and there is fear and the people of God. And in the midst of all of this, Isaiah receives a word from the Lord, and this is what it says, verse 11. This is what the Lord said to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Let's just stop right there. The first thing that God does is warns Isaiah not to walk in the ways of the people. What people is he talking about? The people of Judah who have been so influenced by the culture around them that they forgot how to pursue the Lord. They were so affected by the zeitgeist of the day, by societal norms, by peer pressure, by their social circles, that they forgot and they refused to follow the ways that Yahweh had set out for them. They weren't doing it. Up was down, left was right. What was good was labeled bad, and what was bad was labeled good. And if this sounds familiar, it's because we're living in similar days. And the culture at the time was so far from God that they had mixed up superstition with faith and created an entirely different branch of religion altogether. And God says, do not walk in those ways. Listen, the call of the gospel is to be different. And I don't mean quirky, a little bit weird different. I mean the call of the gospel is to be fundamentally different than the outside world. We're called to be different. And here's what I do. I like to think about these things. And so I think, well, how in my life, how how is Charlie different than the outside world? How am I distinguishing myself as a believer in Christ? And so what we as Christians tend to do is we tend to externalize and we say, okay, here's my list of a couple of things that I'm going to do to be different. And what we do is we put a, we buy the same car as everyone else, but we put a Christian fish on the back, right? Right? Or if you've read Wayne Grudem and your systematic theology and you're feeling really spicy, you put a Christian fish swallowing a Darwin fish, and then you're different. 
Or if you grew up in the 90s like I did, you put on your WWJD bracelet, which means what? What would Jesus do? You got it. I don't know how anyone got saved in the 90s. That's why I'm a Calvinist. And then you wear those bracelets and you think you're different, or you don't listen to secular music and you think you're different, or you don't cuss and you think you're different. And we externalize, but that is not where God says we should be set apart. Those are not the areas. Now, those are good areas. Those are good things to do, and I'm not bashing those. But that's not where it starts. The Christian life, what makes us different, starts with what we fear. Let's look at verse 12. Do not call conspiracy everything that the people call a conspiracy. Um, I'd love to spend some time there. We don't have time. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. There was political fear. There was relational fear. There was, in our day and age, there is mental and physical fear. There's fear over your mental health. There's fear over your physical health. There's fear over terminal diagnosis. There's fear over what the market's going to do in the next six months. And I experience all of those fears. I get it. There's fears over your relationship. Maybe with your spouse, you don't know what you're going to do that's going to set them off, and they, they might be emotionally abusive towards you. There's fear over your job. Are you going to be able to stay in your job? How do you tolerate a boss like the boss you have? And there's fear over these things. There's fear over your kids. And listen, I was a student minister for 10 years. I'm, a, I'm afraid of your kids too. And there's genuine fear over your children and how to discipline them and raise them in the ways of the Lord in our day and age. There's real fear out there, but the scriptures tell us, do not fear what they fear and do not be in dread. What are you, what are you fearing? What are you fearing today? Do you know the number one most commanded thing in all of the scriptures is not to love your neighbor it's not to forgive as you were forgiven. The number one most commanded thing in the entire Bible is do not fear. It shows up 366 times. There's only 66 books in the Bible. It shows up 366 times. Nine times out of 10, it's followed up with, for I, the Lord, am with you. And as believers, what differentiates us, where it starts, is by what we fear. Again, I worked with students for 10 years, um, junior high students, and one thing I picked up with junior high students is that they have what I like to call, what the scriptures call, fear of man. Uh, they want to look cool. They want to fit in. They want to wear the right things and have the right items and the, the newest gadgets, and they want to fit in with their peers. And here's the thing, now that I work with adults, I realize adults do the same thing, don't we? We want to fit in so badly that we fear the approval of people. We do. We want to be included so badly that we will go into debt. We will spend money we don't have on things we don't need to get invited by people we don't know to things we don't really want to go to. All because we fear the approval. We fear the same things that the world fears. And, and we want to tweak our life and make it look a little bit different, but the gospel is calling us to be radically different. Whom shall we fear? The Lord. Verse 13, it says this, The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And I want to talk about this because that sounds odd. 
You know, we talk about God's love. We talk about the reconciling work of the cross. We talk about all these things and those are right and good and praise God for them. But we serve a holy God. A God who, in fact, in Isaiah chapter 6, two chapters before this, um, the cherubim and seraphim are flying around him and they're covering their eyes because they dare not look upon him and they are chanting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah walks up into the throne room and high fives God and says, boy, have I got some questions for you. Actually, that's not how it happens. He falls flat on his face and he says, woe is me for my eyes have seen the king. We serve a holy God. I think too often we're afraid of kittens, but not lions. And a kitten is the fear of man. And we're so busy working for the approval of people that we forget, are we working for the approval of God? You don't walk into a lion's den and slap a lion. Are we standing in awe of who God is? Are we in awe of this holy God? The scriptures tell us that he rules and reigns over the expanse of the universe. You know, astronomers think that there are about 200 billion galaxies out there and God rules and reigns over all of them. There is no rock that God does not know about. There is no corner or crevice in this universe that he does not intimately know. And too often we we look at him with apathy or we don't treat him the way he desires to be treated. And we have no reverence and fear for the Lord. John Murray said, the fear of God is the soul of godliness. And then he goes on to say, and John Frame expounds upon this, that the reason we have such superficial Christianity, why we're lacking disciples, is because we have lost the fear of God. And too often you and I leave church and we say, well, that was a good sermon, or that was bad, or he only had a few days prep, or we say, I didn't like the music choice, and we neglect the fact that we just stood in the presence of God. Do you know in the Old Testament, you could not come into the presence of God like we can? In fact, the high priest had one day out of the year, it was called Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where he could go into the Holy of Holies and they would tie a rope around his feet and put bells on his clothing just in case God struck him dead because of some sin in his life. Because God is so holy so big, so righteous that he cannot be in the presence of evil and you and I are invited into his presence because of what Christ has done. The man on the middle cross beckons us to come and he has paid the price. He has reconciled us. Do you see why we are so serious about worship? Because Christ has reconciled us to this holy God, the Father. And so what type of fear should we have? Should we have this fear where we are just petrified of God all the time or we're trembling in his presence? Because the scriptures tell us, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And they say both know very well the kindness and severity of God. So let me give you an example. I'll give you two examples. Um, I have a, a good dad. I do. Uh, I know that's not the case for everyone. I know that some people have um, harsh fathers that were tough on them um, and even worse. But I have a good dad. He's very loving and kind and forgiving. He's also very stern. And when my dad says to do something, I do. I'm 36 years old. I'm a grown man. 
I don't have to listen to my dad, but I do. And even to this day, when he says for me to do something or not do something, you better believe I'm obeying him. Why? Because I know he's after my good. I know my dad wants what's best for me. I know my dad doesn't discipline me for kicks and giggles, but that he does it because he's after my joy, after my vitality. When God beckons, we as believers obey. Why? Because he's after our good. And we stand in awe of this holy God. We are drawn to things that are bigger than us. Um, We're drawn to tigers and lions at the zoo. We think those are incredible. We're drawn to... um, the Grand Canyon, we're drawn to Mount Rushmore, things that are bigger than us that inspire awe in us. Um, I have a relative who was a Green Beret, and it's it's pretty incredible um, knowing that this man can take me out in a multitude of ways. And for some reason, I want to be around him. It draws me to him. I find it interesting. And in the same way, this fear of God frees us up from the silly pursuit of the fear of man, doesn't it? The book of Romans tells us that when God is on our side, who can be against us? And this this God, this holy God who rules and reigns over all things is on your side today. So you do not have to fear what the market brings. You do not have to fear what the future holds because God is on your side and if that doesn't rile you up, I don't, I don't know what will today. If that doesn't get an amen, I don't know what will. Thank you. There it is. <laughs> that seemed very forced, but thank you. God is on your side. First Presbyterian Church, the soul of godliness is the fear of God. What do you fear? What do you fear? Because listen, The people out there, they're scared. The people out there who need the good news of the gospel, they're scared. They have fear in their lives. They have fear because they're neurodivergent. They have fear because of what's going on in the market. They have fear because of what's going on in the world of politics. And if we're going to change this city for for the gospel, we have to be different. And it starts with fearing the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning, it it starts with fearing you, and I think we would admit that we haven't feared you. We, We have a wrong optic, a wrong lens on, and we haven't viewed you entirely for who you say you are. And so, Father, help us to stand before you, one, knowing that we're loved, knowing that you're after our good, but help us to stand in awe of who you are. Like a good father who cares for his children and yet is stern with us. And so, Father, today I pray that this impacts our lives, that we would stand in awe of who you are. And, Lord, that frees us from having to fear what man can do to us. It frees us from having to fear what Satan can do for us because God of very God is on our side. And so, Lord, transform us so that we might go and transform the heart of the city. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.